Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenaghan and this is a special episode of the podcast to mark Human Rights Day 2021. And when I say it's special, I'm not exaggerating, because today I'm very pleased to be joined by Baroness Hale of Richmond, who, until her retirement in January 2020, was President of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. Lady Hale, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Andy. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. It's lovely to have you uh, on the podcast, Lady Hale. And whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in London, uh, in my flat in London. Um, which looks out over the playground of a boys' school. And sometimes the boys come out to play. So please forgive me if they get a bit rowdy. No need at all. I just saw my wife taking our little boy upstairs for a rest. So there might be some noise here as well. So you're not in Richmond. Richmond is your title, Baroness Hale of Richmond. That's North Yorkshire, isn't that correct? That is correct. Yes. Well, I spend most of my time uh, in Richmond, but I've been down in London for various events and matters and fun. Oh, and fun. Good, good, good. It's not just it's, all, it's, all the fun doesn't happen up in Yorkshire, no. Some of it happens in London. This is true. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, Liddy Hill, your career, it's been steeped in human rights law and in family law. Uh, and you've worked in rules that have seen you shape and reform the law as well as adjudicating and interpreting it. Before we begin to discuss some of the most significant aspects of your work, I'd really like to start by asking you um, how you discovered what you describe in your autobiography, Spider Woman as your love for social justice. Where did that love come from? Where did that passion originate? Well, I think it originated in my childhood uh, because my parents were, both of them, uh, very concerned uh, about those who were less fortunate than they were, Uh, although in many ways they were quite conservative in their views. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, they did care about people uh, and do what they could to to help them. Uh, My mother in particular was, was full of good works, so to speak. And then when I uh, came out of university and began working as a legal academic, that was in the 70s, which was the explosion of the interest in social welfare law. Uh, The uh, Legal Action Group was established. The LAG Bulletin was published. I helped to establish a journal of social welfare law. So all the law that Uh, was around me and that I was most interested in had to do with social justice. Wonderful. And we're going to we're going to touch on a lot of the work you've done throughout your career. But when I read your autobiography, I I picked up on is it one of your oldest friends, Claire, uh, became a a child welfare officer, a social worker. Yes, she did. Yes, she um, she went off to be a child care officer in the days when there were still child care officers and different sorts of social workers. This before 1970, when social work became generic yes. and they had to do both. Um, but yes, and that was quite a radical thing for somebody from our little school to do. Is that I right? I don't think anybody else had done it before. Okay. Why was that? Why was it radical? Yes. It's because our headmistress had rather uh, fixed ideas about what her girls would do. And uh, a few would go to university uh, and 
Others would go to teacher training colleges and others would train as nurses and others would go into banks or insurance companies okay. uh, and, and the like. So she was not very au fait with the newer professions, including okay. social work. And did many go into the, the law? Well, I was the first to go into the law from my school. I think there have been plenty since. Uh, and of course, it, the school itself no longer exists. It amalgamated with the boys' grammar school and the secondary modern school to form a large neighbourhood comprehensive up in Richmond, uh, which is still, I think, a very good school. And you were you were being directed to economics at one point, is that right? Well, my headmistress thought I wasn't a natural historian, though history was my favourite and best subject at school. And so she started casting around for something different that I might do. And for some reason, despite her rather tramlined ideas, she, she um, thought about economics. And I didn't fancy economics one little bit. Uh, far too theoretical for my sort of practical down-to-earth attitude to things. Uh, and I thought about law. And to her credit, she didn't say nonsense, girls don't do law, or they only do law if their fathers are solicitors, which was by and large the case in those days. She said, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, we can't give you any help, but we certainly will encourage you. And it turned out that we were both right. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad. I think your I think your career demonstrates that she she was right. Um, so today we're going to discuss a number of issues that explore how human rights affect our lives and the lives of people who use social work services. But uh, Lady Hill, I think a really good place to start uh, is to explore the the work you did, the groundbreaking work you led in developing the Children Act. That's a piece of legislation many many social workers will be very familiar with. So. It's now over 30 years since the Children Act came into force. And in your role as a law commissioner, you were central to bringing that legislation into being. And not long ago, I read a speech you gave, I think it was the 2019 Scarman Lecture, in which you reflected on the legislation. And I'll include a link in the show notes for listeners to, to find that, that lecture and they can look into detail into that. Um, but it would be great if you could provide an overview of the principles behind the introduction of the Children Act and what you consider to be the key achievements of that legislation. It's difficult for anybody who's grown up with the Children Act, which is most people these days, to realise what the law was like before it. It was a mass of different procedures, different principles. Each court had a different set of powers and none of them could be brought together. So our main job was to try and work out well, what should be the principles uh, of state help and interference in family life. And of course, that includes sorting out uh, private law disputes as well as um, taking children away from their families or intervening in the families. It, it covers all of that. What should be the principles and to make those principles the same throughout uh, and give every court the same procedures and remedies. And we managed to do that by and large. But of course, the principles were that the best interests of the child, the welfare of the child, should be the paramount consideration, that you should listen to children, their wishes and feelings uh, had to be taken into account, both in court and by uh, local social services, uh, children's services, uh, when they were looking after children or thinking what to do with them. Those are the two principal um, principles, but that also the state shouldn't interfere compulsorily simply because it thought it could do better for the child than the parents were doing or the family was doing. It had also to show that the child uh, was either suffering or at risk of suffering significant harm on top of its being better for the child 
for the intervention to take place. That's the act in a nutshell. Thank you, Lydia Hill. And it's lovely as we're talking about the Children Act that we can hear your your friends outside uh, playing in the playground as well. It's it's some lovely ambiance. so Lady Hill, if we look back then to before the Children Act, how were children being failed by the, the legislative uh, landscape prior to your creation of the Children Act as Law Commissioner? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer at this distance in time. Uh, children are always being failed because however good the law is, it has to be operated by people and people are only human. And they make mistakes. And I don't underestimate the real difficulties that social workers face when they are trying to decide whether there is something they should intervene in. Really difficult. Uh, And we had, leading up to the Children Act, we had a string of scandals, not unlike the one we have recently had uh, in England. Uh, But we also had the Cleveland child abuse scandal, where it appeared that the authorities had been too quick to intervene and remove children from their families. So what I think we were trying to achieve was a better balance between intervention and assistance and between the powers of the state and the um, welfare of the family as a whole. And one of the things that we... uh, were particularly keen on, uh, was that people should be exploring the strength that there could be from the wider family uh, in providing support and help and care uh, when parents were finding it difficult. And Lydia Heal, your role was law commissioner when that legislation was developed. And I understand that was a fairly unique way for legislation to be made, to be made by a law commissioner uh, and then introduced to the Commons. So sorry, I mean, you drafted you drafted the bill. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> no. It was always a collaborative okay. effort. It was a partnership between what was then the Department of Health and Social Security and the Law Commission. And basically, the DHSS supplied the uh, policy um, background and the uh, Law Commission supplied the legal background. But of course, you couldn't draw hard and fast lines between them because legal principles obviously um, have some policy in them and uh, policy has some law in it. So uh, it was not a hard and fast line. Uh, But of course, the actual act was drafted by the parliamentary drafter. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, the team, um, which included me, it was a partnership basically between me and Rupert Hughes in the department. Uh, We said what we wanted the law to do, and then the parliamentary drafter put it into words. And some pretty good words too. Thank thank you for clarifying my rather kind of uh, (laughs) sloppy uh, attempt to explain the process. But that that legislation was was introduced to parliament and then it had to pass through parliament. Were there aspects of the legislation that were undone in the process that you think uh, watered down any of the impacts? Or were you happy enough with the the, the bill, sorry, the act as, as, a, as it yes. became? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it began its life in the House of Lords. It was introduced by the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay of Clashfern, who is a great man. Uh, and when it passed through the Lords, it then went to the Commons and passed through the Commons. And when it was first introduced, uh, the bill was not, in fact, complete <laughs> because we'd got our slot, but we hadn't 
completed the drafting. So it had to have an awful lot done to it as it went through Parliament, but it didn't, that was all necessary, filling in the gaps. Uh, I don't think, I can't recall that anything happened to it in Parliament which watered it down or uh, caused um, concern to the team at all, um, which is not always the case with one's law reform proposals. They don't always survive parliamentary scrutiny as one would have wanted them to. But I think the Children Act came through pretty well unscathed. Thank you, Lady Hill. So 30 years on, we've had 30 years to reflect on the legislation. You've been in various roles um, uh, interpreting the legislation. But three decades on, is there any need for the legislation to be reviewed or updated? In my view, the legislation is fine. Um, It's had some additions uh, over those 30 years. Um, Some of them have been beneficial, particularly in relation to children uh, leaving care. Uh, Some of them have probably not made much difference. But what has made the biggest difference are two things, both of them the product of austerity, one of them the severe cuts to children's services, which have meant that many children's services departments have not been able to expend the time and the resources on helping families uh, to uh, look after their children safely and better, which was what we always hoped would be the main purpose of the Children Act, that the authorities should work in partnership with families rather than in opposition to them. So that's one big regret. The other big regret uh, is the removal of public funding for legal services connected with disputes between mothers and fathers, husbands and wives. Uh, because that has led to a great many more cases reaching the courts than should do, uh, and a great many more arguments than there should be. And it's the children who suffer when there are arguments between their parents. So those are the two big disappointments uh, from the last just over a decade, in fact. Yes, thank you, Lady Hill. I mean, the most recent episode of Let's Talk Social Work, we looked at uh, the cost of living crisis uh, and uh, we talked about the impacts that poverty is having on on families, uh, particularly in relation Mm -hmm. to the life opportunities for young people. And those are massively significant. Around that time that the Children Act was being drafted, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child was also being developed. And it was adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1989 and the UK ratified it in 1991. So, uh, just to be clear, I'm not asking for a comment on the recent Supreme Court decision concerning the Scottish government's attempt to integrate the UNCRC into Scots law. But what I am interested in is whether there are aspects of the Convention on the Rights of the Child that you think could have benefited from coming into UK law. Well, UK law could benefit by um, the implementation of Article 3, which requires that the best interests of any child affected shall be a primary consideration in all decisions uh, made by uh, public authorities, governments, including legislatures, as well as social welfare institutions uh, that affect them. Um, We've got a watered down or a different version of it in a few places, but we could do with that as a universal uh, requirement. 
And in relation to the courts, so in specifically in relation to the courts, the Children Act requires that when a court determines any question with respect to the upbringing of a child, the child's welfare shall be the court's paramount consideration. In relation to the UNCRC, Article 3 requires that the best interests of a child shall be a primary consideration in all decisions and actions that affect them. So it goes wider than the courts. But in relation to the Children Act and how that impacts um, cases that come before the courts, does the Children Act go further than the UNCRC in that regard? Yes, it does. It does. Um, saying that the child's welfare is paramount means that uh, the child's welfare answers the question. Whereas saying that the best interests of a child shall be a primary consideration doesn't mean that it's the only consideration and it can be outweighed by other considerations. Uh, that's why Article 3 is appropriate for governmental decisions for example, uh, to take an obvious example about welfare benefits, the benefit cap and the two-child rule and things like that, uh, it would be an appropriate um, influencer of governmental decisions, but not necessarily paramount if there are other considerations which are weighty enough uh, to overcome it. Whereas when it's a question in court between mother and father or between local authority and parents, well, then the court's got to decide between the two and the child's welfare is the deciding factor. Thank you, Lady Hill. I just want to move on to discuss the, the role of social workers in the court process. Providing evidence before the courts is a major area of activity for social workers, and it's one that can be very daunting. Uh, you know, it's a pressured situation, uh, not only in terms of the stresses on the, uh, of the processes, but also in the context of the growing demands uh, on social workers and the courts owing to the continued increase in the number of children in care. And this is something we, we touched on already. But with this in mind, I'm eager for your view on what makes for an effective working relationship between the professional actors in the legal process. What makes for an effective relationship is that each profession involved in the process understands the role of the other profession uh, involved in the process and respects it. So the judiciary should understand the pressures and the professional background within which social workers have to work, just as they ought to understand the pressures and professional background against which doctors have to work. Uh, we all should try and understand one another. And that was one of the good things about the Children Act when it first came in. There was a great deal of interdisciplinary work went on. I've no idea how much of that is still going on because I'm a long way away from the family courts these days, okay. but it was a very good thing. Uh, and that is the best way for everyone to understand and respect one another. Okay. And I suppose we can't reflect on the situation right now, but going back to when the Children Act came into force, it, that needed to, to correct um, shortcomings there. There was a misunderstanding between the, the actors. I think there was not sufficient understanding. I think there was not, uh, probably amongst all concerned, um, sufficient understanding that this is, in effect, an integrated system, just as the, um, yes. just as the criminal justice system is an integrated system. We've all got different parts to play in it uh, and different professional roles and um, pressures. Uh, and it is a very pressurised uh, environment, trying to do one's best for children, and very stressful. Uh, we need 
to understand one another, we need to get together and share our thoughts yes. about all sorts of things. Yes. I mean, just in reflecting with colleagues, I mean, the, the, the sense that I would get from social work colleagues when they are before the court, uh, there's a sense that they're not necessarily seen as equal players. Um, mm. And that's unfortunate. Mm. Um, and uh, I suppose there is work there that needs to be done in terms of having that mutual understanding. Um, but with that in yes. mind, just thinking back over your career as a judge, Lady Hill, are there any instances that stand out to you where a social worker provided evidence that led you to consider an issue in the new light? Or are there any sort of standout moments that you can think of? <laughs> I'm sure that there will have been. Uh, plenty of those examples. I can remember some extremely uh, impressive social work evidence uh, that I, I heard. Um, and I think what impressed me the most were those social workers who knew it was their duty to put the case before the court because they were concerned for the child's safety and welfare. But they also knew that it was for the court ultimately to decide what risks to take. Uh, and it was in those cases where the social worker understood that and was prepared to have a real dialogue, um, not only with <laughs> the barristers you know, who were asking the questions, but I'm afraid with the judge who was also asking the questions, to find out whether this was a risk that uh, really could be taken. So yes, very impressive. Lydia Hill, thank you uh, for your reflections on the Children Act. That's incredibly helpful. I want to move on now to talk about tensions between competing human rights. And the scenario I'm going to put to you is around compulsory vaccination. Now, this is an issue that um, is going to affect adult services, social workers. Uh, and I'm interested in your views in relation to how Articles 2 and Articles Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights interact in this scenario. So European Convention on Human Rights, those are the, the the rights that have made their way into the Human Rights Act, which is the flagship human rights legislation for the UK. So in relation to those uh, two articles, two and eight, do you have any reflections on those in relation to the issue of mandatory vaccination? Well, article two, of course, is the right to life. And the state has not only a duty uh, to refrain from taking life, it also has a duty to have in place a system of laws and regulations and enforcement which will protect life. Um, and indeed, it has to take operational steps to protect individual lives uh, in certain very limited circumstances. Article 8, on the other hand, is the right to respect for one's private life. Uh, and that, of course, includes uh, the uh, respect for one's um, ability to make one's own decisions about healthcare and vaccination. So it, these two rights can be in tension with one another. Uh, the Article 8 right is a qualified right. So it is possible for the state to interfere with the right to respect for private life. Uh, if it is a proportionate means of uh, securing a legitimate aim. And to protect the rights of others is, of course, a legitimate aim. So it all comes down to uh, whether it is a proportionate <laughs> uh, means of protecting the lives of others uh, to oblige certain people uh, who come into contact with vulnerable others, especially vulnerable others, uh, to uh, 
try and protect those others uh, by uh, being vaccinated. Of course, that all depends on the evidence as to how good a protection the vaccination is against passing on the infection. There may be better protections against passing on the uh, infection than vaccination. We're debating all of that evidence at the moment, and that's an evidential question to which I don't have the answer. But I do know what the legal framework is, which I've just explained. Yes, and that's very helpful. So Article 8, you mentioned Article 8 was a qualified right. Article 2, the right to life, that is an absolute right. Is that the correct terminology? That is an absolute right. But of course, uh, having a system of laws and regulations which protect life, in a sense, involves judgments about which sort of laws should you have to protect life, which are the most effective laws to protect life. So although it's an absolute right, uh, it's not cut and dried what those laws should be. Yes, yes. And in relation to Article 8, which is a qualified right, that can be um, amended in relation to uh, or infringed in relation to protection of public safety, protection of health, those sorts of issues. Um, Now, Lady Hill, this might be a real stretch, but I just want to ask you this question. Um, In relation to if somebody was saying that being mandatorily vaccinated was um, amounted to cruel and inhuman treatment, would there be any scope for making that sort of argument? Well, you can make any sort of argument. Um, My own argument, I'm afraid, would be that some of the conditions which were imposed, particularly in care homes, during lockdown uh, last year and earlier this year, probably did amount to cruel and inhuman treatment of the residents in those care homes. Mm No, being basically in solitary confinement and deprived of uh, contact with uh, their nearest and dearest uh, could, in certain circumstances, amount to treatment contrary to Article 3. Yes. I'm afraid that nobody's going to hold somebody down and force them to have an injection. What they are going to say is, that if you don't have the injection, there are certain jobs you cannot do. That's not going to be cruel and inhuman treatment. Okay, okay. And Just in doing some research, I think there was one case that come before the European Court of Human Rights before that concerned vaccination. That was a case from the Czech Republic. Parents who were um, opposing uh, the vaccination of their children. And then I think the children were unable to attend a preschool uh, and the court ruled in favour of the, the state preventing the, the children mm. attending the preschool. So there is some precedent in relation to vaccination. Well, that, that, would, not, that would not surprise me one little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, It's not that anybody is being physically forced to have the um, vaccination. It is that they're being denied certain things that they might want. Yes, yes. Um, if they don't. And it's interesting because we talked about Article 2, Right to Life, uh, Article 3. Those are both absolute rights. Um, and and mm. the, the question I suppose I want to move on to then, there's a prevailing attitude that a human right is is always something absolute and that's something that can never be infringed. Um, so that's correct for some rights. It's not correct for others. But that can clearly lead to misunderstandings and that can cause problems. So is there anything you think could be done in society more generally to promote understanding of human rights and how to resolve tensions between them? Is this something we should be taught at school, do you think? Well, I would, of course, like um, there to be more talk in school um, about uh, the law generally and the justice system generally, 
uh, and how important it is for everybody. It's not the justice system isn't something that does things to you; it also does things for you. Uh, and I would like there to be much more understanding of that. And if that included uh, within it a, a lesson about um, the different sorts of human rights and how they um, interact with one another, that would be a good thing. But of course, the media could do a better job, could they not? And uh, well, tell me a little more about that. Where, where is the media feeling? Do you think, uh, Lady Hill? Well, of course, I don't know anything about social media, and that is a problem uh, because. Uh, I cannot pontificate about what social media should and should not be doing. But I get the impression that there is an awful lot of misinformation out there okay. uh, and that, that there are echo chambers where people just uh, get the information that they want and they agree with and they don't listen to the other side of the story, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, the uh, mainstream media... Uh, newspapers in particular, uh, were initially very hostile to the Human Rights Act. And that was because they saw it as interfering with their own freedom to invade other people's privacy to their heart's content. Um, They didn't like that. I think they've got a lot more balance recently and and realised that there is far more (laughs) to to human rights than that. Uh, And so one hopes that the mainstream media are now doing a better job. But we need the message of, of of what human rights can do for people uh, to be reinforced all the time. This podcast isn't necessarily a bad way of doing it's that. It's not bad it? at all. Thank you. Thanks again. And in relation to understanding human rights, one issue that I've come to some understanding of recently, but I think um, is really helpful to talk about is the the, the sort of the nature of civil and political rights and economic and social rights and what they mean for us and what they mean for us as citizens. So the European Convention on Human Rights, that is essentially uh, civil and political rights. Um, And if someone's rights under the European Convention on Human Rights are infringed, they can appeal through the domestic courts and ultimately to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. However, if an individual's rights under the European Social Charter are infringed, the process is different and complaints have to be made collectively to the European Committee of Social Rights. Now, I'd really welcome your view on whether the standing of the European Convention of Human Rights in comparison to the European Social Charter creates a two-tier system uh, of human rights. Well, it does. There's no real doubt about that. The European Convention on Human Rights is basically a convention on civil and political rights and freedoms. Uh, It does not contain any social rights. There's a bit of an argument that uh, Article 3 in human and degrading treatment and punishment uh, does involve a certain amount of positive obligation um, to provide in certain circumstances. There is a bit of an argument that the Article 2 of the first protocol, which deals with education, uh, maybe it does involve a bit of a right to education. But by and large, what the convention says is uh, we don't expect the state to provide anything for people. But if they do provide it, they've got to do so in a non-discriminatory manner. And so all the arguments about social uh, and economic rights under the uh, European Convention, broadly speaking, these are big generalizations. 
are about discrimination and has this benefit been uh, unfairly denied to a, a certain group of people. Whereas, of course, economic and social rights um, are rights to be provided with certain benefits. Um, and uh, the view that is taken in this country is that that's a matter for the government to decide what benefits are going to be provided. Uh, and uh, so the idea that there will be directly enforceable in UK law rights to such benefits is not one that would go down extremely well <laughs> with uh, any government in this country. Uh, they want to make those decisions for themselves. And so, yes, um, they are not directly enforceable in UK law. And that is, of course, a two-tier system. And I just want to come back. You Near the start of the conversation, Lady Hill, you touched on the two-child limit in relation to universal credit and child mm. tax credit. That's an area of work that Baz has done a huge amount of work on, campaigning to see the two-child limit removed. Um, so the Economic uh, and Social Charter, the UK is a signatory to it. The UK, UK, sorry, in terms of the revised uh, Economic and Social Charter, the UK is a signatory to it, um, but it hasn't ratified it. It has an article, Article 30, the right to protection against poverty and social exclusion. If a social mm. worker is representing, uh, you know, a family advocating on behalf of a family uh, that's in poverty um, that aren't able to access uh, um, mm. universal credit uh, child element for the third, fourth, fifth child, what worth is that economic and social right if it's not enforceable in the UK courts? Do, do, do courts pay heed to the to the economic and social charter, um, even though it's not actually in law? Well, well. The strict answer to that is that uh, if the UK is party to an international treaty, it's binding on the UK in international law, although if it's only signed and not ratified, it isn't even binding. Yes. Um, but supposing it's signed and ratified, it's binding in international law and therefore can be enforced through the international mechanisms for enforcement, but it is not binding in UK law. Uh, unless and until it is translated into uh, UK law by an act of parliament, such as the Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the whole, the Supreme Court has quite recently said uh, that uh, it's not a matter for the courts whether the UK is in breach of its obligations in international law under unincorporated treaties. Can you explain a wee bit more about that? Because I'd read that and I didn't really understand what that meant in terms of the implications. Well, it, it's, it's really difficult because there are circumstances in which uh, an international obligation may be relevant in a human rights context. For example, uh, the obligation to make the uh, best interests of a child uh, first priority is indirectly incorporated because the uh, European Court of Human Rights has said that in certain circumstances it has to be taken into account in deciding whether there's been a breach of the co convention rights, the rights in the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. So the Supreme Court acknowledges that it is necessary to take into account the best interests of the children when deciding questions to which it is relevant under the Human Rights Act. 
they accept that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean, as I explained earlier, it doesn't mean that it's uh, overriding. It doesn't mean that it's paramount, but it has to be taken into account. But as a general proposition, something which is in an international treaty, which has not been incorporated into UK law, is not a matter for the courts. And what the Supreme Court was saying was that it's not for the courts to decide whether the UK is in breach of its international obligations. That's not the question. The question is, in certain circumstances, whether the welfare of the child or the children involved has been actually taken into account. And what what ruling does that, that make sense? It does. It does. That it's helpful. It does. Just if anyone wants to follow up more on that, what was that the ruling in relation to? Was that SC and others versus Secretary of State? Was that the was that the case about yes. the two tail limit? That was, okay. Yes. Okay. Thank yeah. you, Lady Hill. Now, Lady Hill, I have one last question for you um, as we wrap up. Um, I'm keen to discuss the current toxicity of a huge amount of public and political discourse over a range of issues. You know, this is probably encapsulated most clearly in relation to the Brexit debate, but it covers a wide range of issues of, you know, debates, for example, maybe something like trans rights um, at the moment. Given your career as senior address at the highest level, contentious matters, so not least in terms of family law, perhaps most prominently in terms of the Supreme Court judgment concerning the government's prorogation of parliament, I just want to ask what advice you have to give to people at all levels of these discussions to ensure that debate, no matter how impassioned, remains respectful. Do you think that's possible? Of course it's possible. Of course it's possible. I've uh, spent um, all my professional life either in a university in which uh, rational debate was possible, strong views were held, but people were able to debate them uh, in a respectful and polite manner. Uh, And then, of course, going into judging, where (laughs) you listen to some extremely strongly held views, (laughs) sometimes from the parties giving evidence in the witness box, and sometimes from counsel uh, arguing a case with great passion and force, but always in a respectful manner and always waiting their turn and listening to what the other person has said, and then saying, well, I've heard you say that, but I disagree, and I disagree for the following reasons. Uh, And not calling into question the motives or the personality or the character of the person with whom you're having this debate. Um, I think that's, that's the most worrying thing that people are accused of being bad people Mm -hmm. because of the views that they express. Now, sometimes, of course, they will be bad people, but in order to challenge the views, you have to look at the views rather than uh, accuse somebody of being a bad person. So I think that would be my uh, main piece of advice. Don't accuse the person you're having an argument with of being a bad person. Okay. Listen nice. to their argument. I like that the, the listen, but it's something which we've come over and over again in relation to the podcast around different discussions, you know, kind of issues about identity and, and, and those sorts of things, about listening, actively listening and, and trying to understand mm. as opposed to just um, reacting. And it's interesting you said about, you know, impassioned debate in academia and then having arguments put to you in a court setting. One of the issues you, you touched on earlier in terms of social media People are at a distance. People are essentially invisible. You don't see the person's humanity. You don't see them in front of you. It's very easy mm-hmm. to go for the lowest mm-hmm. common denominator argument when there is that distance. Being face to face, one of the things we talk about all the time is that social work is a relational profession. You have to build a relationship with the person you're helping. It might be a person who um, uh, 
uh, has has you know strong views on something that you don't agree with, but to get beside them, to work with them, to advocate on their behalf, you have to understand them and you have to enter into that relationship. That's it's helpful advice. Thank you, um, mm -hmm. Lydia Hill. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate you giving us an hour um, for the podcast. It's been great uh, having a conversation. I've enjoyed it a great deal, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground, really, one way and another. Um, and and I hope that people have found it interesting. I'm sure they have. Thank you, Lady Hill. And even if they don't agree, that they will listen. <laughs> yes.